This is The Sean Prue Show on Canada Talks, Sirius XM 167. It sure is. Glad you're with us. Another hour of Thought Revolution Radio. Spooky style this weekend for you. Thursday, uh, I'm not a big Halloween fan. I'm just going to put it out there. Uh, you know, there are some, like, Wendy Williams always says she's not a big Halloween fan. I know. I never had good Halloween experiences as a child. And, and so now I feel like I'm a stick in the mud. And, and, and in fact... For Halloween, I usually say I'm going as a stick in the mud as I wander around with my street clothes on. But suddenly, and I don't know why, uh, I don't know why it took me this long to realize this, but this is a really good excuse as a gay man to put a turban on that day. Maybe a big garden hat with a veil, a la Joan Collins. Things I've always wanted to do. So while I'm 51 years old, and you would think that might have dawned on my gay brain many decades ago, it's just dawned on me now, and I uh, think that's what I'm going to do, and you are rolling your eyes as you listen to this. Uh, When you think Halloween, you think monsters. And when you think monsters, you think cliched ideas about monsters, don't you? Like, for example, if I say Frankenstein, you just think of the guy on the cereal box, don't you? Don't you? You think of the guy on the cereal box. Did you not know that there is a timeless story with, with parallels that run through to today's time, today's age, and the way we feel about ourselves and see the world around us uh, called Dr. Victor Frankenstein in, in this Halloween if you were lucky enough to be in Ottawa, I would suggest you get your cute little spooky butts out to see Frankenstein, the opera. It runs only two nights, uh, Halloween night and November 1st. And with me right now is the star, and, and he's super tall, and Constantine Meglis. Did you notice what boots I've got on today because of you? Oh, my God. <laughs> I still don't think you're as tall as I am anyway. <laughs> I'm still not as tall. Uh, nice to see you. Nice to have you on the show. You're the star of Frankenstein the Opera. You're a noted actor and opera singer. And this is, and, and, and I know you from outside the studio, this is one hell of a role. And he's six foot effing nine. And I'm six foot four. And in his company, I feel so small and pretty and safe. And that never happens. It's so nice. But I've got these boots on today, and the heel's like two and a half inches. I never wear them because I can never wear them. But I can wear them today because you're here. Welcome. Thank you very much. I also used to hate Halloween. Did you? Tell me why. Because everyone thought I was just too old to be going out trick-or-treating. Oh, right. So when did you sprout up? Because And, and, and you might think if you're listening to this... Um, that we're just going to talk about our height. But the point is, what the th- one of the themes of Frankenstein it is... A- it actually is, fits in. ...is of being of enormous stature. And that can be literal or metaphorical. But let's talk about our height, baby. No, it's about being different. Yes, it's about being different. And wanting well, to be accepted. And metaphorical is, is what I meant by that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in this world where we're so... Um, trained and conditionalized to be assimilators. Mm. It's a timely story. Oh, exactly. And, uh, you know, when Mary Shelley wrote this in the 1820s, a lot of people think that it's actually um, 
something that was just uh, from a comic book. It's actually an ancient, uh, uh, goes back to ancient Greece. Um, the uh, uh, sub-theme was called, uh, she called it Frankenstein, uh, a modern uh, Prometheus. Mm. Tell us who Prometheus was. That's a very good question. I was just uh, reading that the other day, and as I told you, I've been sick the last three days. Okay. My brain is quite scattered right now. That's okay. we'll, bring, we'll bring Andrew on. We'll bring Andrew on for that. Andrew's the composer. He'll join us in, in, in a little while. Um, so what does it mean to you as a six foot nine person to play? Now, I know I, I also, it's my understanding that that has been your leading edge and your difference as a performer in the world of acting and opera. I know it's been a hindrance to, to some things. It can't not have been because I know my height's a hindrance sometimes, but, but it's also been what you've, you did a PSA with Rick Hansen uh, with their foundation recently, and you're the tall guy in the elevator, right? You know, so you get stuff. Tell us how the, the, exactly. the blessing and the curse of it. And sort of being a Greek, swarthy-looking, dark-skinned, uh, uh, Greek-looking um, uh, character. I'm also the mafia type. Uh, yeah. the, uh, the killer. The killer, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The villain. Yeah. But the, those are the types of characters I play in opera as well, because yes. I'm a base, and the base is always the authority figure or the, uh, the villain of some sort or... Or, um, so it's just in keeping with what I've always done. We did Opera 101, and we had a soprano, Maureen Black, came on last year. And she taught us a little bit, because I, I was on my, my, my 50 New Things for 50 Year Olds, the old kick that the listener knows about. I was trying 50 New Things, and one of the things I'd never done was go to the opera. I'd never been to an opera. You're kidding. And, nope. And we had been to um, the, I forget the name of it, and I hated it. Um, and I'm proud to say that at the, the Canadian Opera Company, it was the gay Zadrian, Hadrian, Hadrian, I think it was what it was called. Didn't get it, didn't understand it. Uh, I, I'm a Leo, I can't be bored. I had to go. Um, I have a feeling that Frankenstein is not that sort of thing. No, I, not at all. It's got lots of pathos in it. You're talking about the Rufus Wainwright opera. I am, and I mean no distress with uh, Daniel MacGyver, and, I, and both both very talented. Um, Thomas Hampson, huge uh, star. I hated it. I hated it. A lot of people did. Yeah, and I, I don't mean that disrespectfully, um, but I don't, didn't get it. I, it was inaccessible to me, and a lot of people were saying, and so this is this is this is why I'm bringing this in in the Opera 101, and Maureen can't coming on, is. She helped explain through her lens what opera is and why it ought to be, and, and, it, and it was always meant and intended to be accessible. And yet I believe that it's seen as something inaccessible. What is opera to you? Tell a listener and sell me on why I should go see another opera. Especially in North America, opera is seen as something very elitist. And the reason it is, is probably because it's just so expensive to go and see opera. Right. It's, um, we're not taught about it in school. Um, in Europe, uh, kids uh, very, very young will learn uh, all about operas. Um, there's, uh, they're taken to opera when they're kids. I remember when I was at the Greek National Opera for uh, over a decade, We'd have groups of kids who'd come in, um, 
were there for, I think, for free, I think. Mm. Um, they'd have a certain amount of seats uh, a few times mm. a week. We don't respect art in North America mm. nearly to the degree Europeans respect art. That's just inarguable in my book. But it's not elitist because it was the common music. It was the pop music of its day. It mm -hmm. was um, it was not uh, something just for the higher ups. In fact, it was uh, it was the uh, absolute uh, opposite of that. It was for common people. Um, Maureen was 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 saying very much the same thing in her sort of um, uh, tutorial for us. What is the joy of opera for you? What does everyone? who doesn't know opera need to know about opera? That the universal themes that we're still looking at today um, were still spoken of in opera that's two or 300 or 400 years old. I mean, um, I've made a lot of, uh, uh, drawn a lot of comparisons against the very popular uh, musical, uh, which, uh, uh, Dear Evan Hansen, mm -hmm. which was uh, is still quite popular, was here in uh, yes, it was. Toronto just for here. quite a while. No, no, not wasn't for quite a while, just for a few months, I think. Sorry, Evan. <laughs> I'm making a lot of comparisons of uh, uh, comparisons uh, between Frankenstein and that. Um, in that, um, uh, the story is sort of told through the monster's eyes. The monster is called the monster. Yes. Frankenstein is actually his creator, Dr. Frankenstein. Yes. Um, he is just misunderstood, and all he wants to be loved and accepted by everybody else. And, and uh, Well, no one understands that theme, do we? No. No one understands <laughs> that. And, um, and the enormous stature part, I mean, clearly you're well cast in that, but it's a metaphor, obviously. Absolutely, yes. How, how do you, when something is obvious, you're cast in this role, you're of enormous stature, and yet at the same time you know that there's a metaphor in it for everybody. How do you not make it just about being of enormous stature? Because that's too easy, and I know just enough about you that... You're not that person who's just going to feed us. Hey, by by default of my my enormous stature, that's all I'm going to give you. What what else do you give an audience? What else do you mine? What parts of yourself are different that you put forth as a performer? There's been very many uh, profound uh, moments in the opera where um, I'm often thinking, "Don't we all think this at some point through our lives?" Nice. For instance, one, one point I'm saying, um, who am I and why do I exist? And um, don't we all think that? And do you sing it in English? Yes, it's all Hala in English. Because <laughs> that's, that's hard, too. That's hard, too, for a lot of people. Uh, we're going to be back with uh, Mr. Constantine Meglis and uh, the composer. As we go to break, let's listen to a piece from Frankenstein. I haven't heard this yet. I'm hearing it fresh with you. The Sean Proust Show continues here on SiriusXM, Canada Talks, Channel 167.
The Sean Pru Show on Canada Talks, Sirius XM 167. And you're thinking, oh, he's always so dramatic. That's Sean Pru. Welcome back. Glad you're with us on Sirius XM Canada Talks Channel 167. Uh, that sounds intense. That sounds dramatic. That sounds vaguely spooky as well. And just in time, uh, f- because it's happening. Halloween night and November 1st, probably not an accident. Um, Frankenstein, the opera, is in Ottawa. And my guest right now, Constantine Meglis, is the uh, six-foot-nine opera singer, actor, performer, all-round good guy who has been sharing about the opera in general and his role as Frankenstein who uh, was, is just a little different and a lot different than everyone else. And we we're talking about the themes of this because being bigger than anyone else or being, being different is, is a general theme, but there's some deeper stuff. And you were saying there are lines in here that in the script or in the music where you're, you're saying everybody has said these before. Go. Like I said, when he's questioning, um, who am I and why am I alive? Mm-hmm. Which is such a uh, everybody says that at some mm-hmm. point. In their I life. said that this morning, and <laughs> I did. I did exactly. <laughs> and what else? What else? Tell us more. And then he just wants somebody to love. Isn't that what we all want out of life? And he says to his creator, Doctor Frankenstein, he says, um, "Please make me a bride, just as hideous as myself." Well, see, I'm always saying to my creator, please make me a man just as otherworldly beautiful as myself with supermodel legs <laughs> like mine and a sparkling personality who does as he's told. Andrew Ager joins us on the phone right now. He's in Ottawa. And uh, this is Frankenstein, the opera by Andrew Ager, uh, who has composed music for the Queen, my spies tell me. Hi, Andrew. How are you today? I'm bad. How are you guys? I'm very well. Thank you for joining us. Uh, were my spies correct? Because I will fire them all if that's not true information. That I wrote music for the Queen of England? Yes. Yeah, I did. That was about 10 years ago. She came down to Toronto with her husband, and uh, she made a visit to St. James Cathedral. And at that time, I was uh, music director there. So someone said, I'd like to pay you to write a little piece to sing to her. And we did that. And I'll tell you something, that piece was paid for by money that was I later found out was embezzled. Oh, that's so hot. <laughs> it was fantastic. It's so sexy. <laughs> yeah, the guy, the guy paid me cash for it in the parking lot of the cathedral the week before the queen was there. <laughs> An envelope of cash. I said, thank you very much. We did the piece. She liked it, apparently. And uh, then about six months later, I found out that uh, it had been embezzled. So that's, I'm kind of touching that. myself listening to this <laughs> <laughs> in <Yeah>. my mind. <laughs> so I just want to let anyone know if there are any money launderers out there who want to sponsor the Sean Peru show, slip me a uh, wad of bills in the parking lot. I'm Wait, not. Let's talk about my next opera. My next opera that'll involve money laundering for sure. <laughs> oh, fantastic! <laughs> well, what a great guest you are to have on the show. Why Frankenstein? What's the um, what is the deepest place in your heart that called this forward for you, as opposed to Wonder Woman, the opera? Oh, good question. Well, I would say you go back quite a long time to when I was three or four. That's a and long that's time. I've done my oh, research, no, sir. 
Yeah, that's in the last century, actually. <laughs> uh, so there we are at home. I'm the youngest of a family of four. All of us are interested in horror movies and superstitious things and uh, monster movies from a very early time. My mother, as well, used to read us horror stories at bedtime. And uh, I was... I had nightmares about the Frankenstein monster from a very, very young age. Thanks, Mom. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, <laughs> you're right. Thank you very much indeed. Mm -hmm. So, uh, anyway, many years later, uh, I'm writing an opera on a vampire theme, not Dracula, and I thought, you know, this theme isn't going to go anywhere. This story's not well enough known. I need something that everyone knows. So I switched over to Frankenstein, and it so happened at that time that an opera group in Toronto approached me to do something, and so we put it together and did the world premiere in 2010. And then uh, I said uh, a couple of years ago, I said I want to do it again, so that's why we're doing it now. Uh, now, I, I, I can't see you, and this is a question I ask uh, almost every man I do meet. Are you of enormous stature? It depends what part of my body you're referring to. <laughs> Every uh, listener of this show knows what I'm referring to. <laughs> uh, well, well, it, then I have to uh, answer. It depends who you're talking to. Ah, but okay. So, uh, are, are you someone who identifies with a theme that uh, way? The that theme, way. The theme of being uh, of enormous stature. Yeah, yeah. Well, because I'm six foot four and Constantine's six foot nine, and I've worn my kick-ass Fluvog's fake purple alligator shoes because <laughs> I'm not having a photo taken with him and being as short as I feel next to him. So, uh, but if, if you were here, would you need some, um, a, a bit of a lift? Uh, now let me tell you, I can answer that. Uh, about 30 years ago at university of Western Ontario, uh, I was studying composition. I don't even know why, but there I was. And, uh, one day I was working in the library and the guy came up next to me to take a book out of the library uh, who towered over me. And I thought, now, you know, someday if I ever need a big extra in something I'm doing. And then I heard him singing as the king of Japan in the Mikado. And I thought, okay, even better. So I tucked that away in my memory. Uh, and so this many years later, uh, I approached Constantine. Shut up. And, yeah, that's the story. I love this and, story. And as far as my actual height goes, no, I'm I'm in the absolute miserable medium range of males. Constantine so. is making like super shorts, the super short sign, but that's in oh, our, exactly. our tall talk. That's in our tall talk. Yeah. So I'm sure your your normal height, average height. Uh, what have you learned? And I'm asking this to each of you now. Maybe I'll let you go first, Constantine, about yourself as someone of enormous stature as you have been progressing towards the October 31st opening uh, in Ottawa at the Dominion Chalmers uh, United Church, by the way, um, if you're looking for tickets, if you're lucky enough to be in the Ottawa area, October 31st and November 1st. Um, what have you learned about yourself that maybe you didn't know before about your stature? Well, I really relate to this character that I'm playing, uh, Frankenstein's monster, because I my whole life um, uh, have sort of felt quite different from everybody mm -hmm. when I'm not 
And um, the monster wants to be just like everyone, wants to be friends with everyone. Mm-hmm. He's actually a really sweet guy in this big, horrible, scary-looking package. But he, does he want to be like everyone else in an assimilation way or a be myself and be accepted for who I am? I way. don't think he cares either way. Either way. People just see him scream and take off. <laughs> Andrew, you're the composer of Frankenstein, the opera. Um, what did you come out of this knowing that you didn't know that maybe surprised you about the stature or the desire to be or fit in or assimilate even? Although I think those are two very different things. Being yourself and holding that in, in, in society or whatever is one thing. Assimilating is what most people do. But mm, what do you know now that you didn't before? Yeah, well... What I like about working on it now is that this is the second. Constantine is the second singer to take this role. Uh, the first uh, performance of it was done by someone who was maybe six foot two or three, oh, but built like a big, yeah, a real you know, shrimp, yeah. uh, but built like a um, you know a football player. So his take on it was of a more. Um, aggressive, almost childlike, large child uh, who uh, had a bad temper. And uh, he, did a, he did a great job, that's fine. But when I did it this time, I thought, now let's go for someone bigger if we can, physically bigger. And, that uh, brings more sensitivity more, into it. And br- Well, that's exactly right. Thank that's you. exactly right. I know Constantine. Yeah, sure. Well, you see, that's the whole point, is that this time around, the creature is less threatening and menacing right from the very start but he reacts to things rather than seems to just be a bad kid right from the start that's the difference in this production um i think and i said this to to constantine that 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 this is this is a joan collins moment about to unfold do you know what i mean by that andrew uh no not at all (laughs) <laughs> I just think that, so So Joan Collins came and she was the villainess on Dynasty and it catapulted the show to the number one thing in America for years and it's a special moment in time and it's a special thing to have happen to a show and to a performer and I just feel like, um, and, and I've said to the listener before you came on, Constantine, someone I know not, not terribly well, but we know each other and it's the right, I'm just talking out of my butt. Um, it's the right time, it's the right place, and it's the right person. And I just, how much time do we have left, babe? Two minutes. So I'm gonna, I just wish you both a lot of joy and success with this because I think the world needs a closer examination of the joy and the beauty of being different and that yeah. in the end we all are. And I think you got the right man for the job. And from what I'm understanding and, and listening to you, you get it. And, and so the right yeah. storytellers come along. And so good luck, guys. Well, thank you very much for having me on. Thanks. Uh, last couple of seconds. Um, Frankenstein in one word, Andrew, go. Tragic. Constantine Meglis. Heart-wrenching. Frankenstein the Opera by Andrew Eger in Ottawa, October 31st and November 1st. And I bet you... On and on after that. It's at the Dominion Chalmers United Church, 
Look it up online. Don't be so lazy. I'm not telling you where else to get tickets. You can find them yourselves. It's everywhere. But if you're in the Ottawa area, uh, do check that out. Frankenstein, the opera. The Champru Show, uh, the opera, continues here on... Or the soap opera continues here on Sirius XM Canada Talks, Channel 167. Gentlemen, thank you so much. We'll be right back after this break. You were wonderfully made, marvelous, amorous, glorious, Welcome back to the Sean Prue Show on Canada Talks. Here's Sean Prue. Welcome back to the Sean Prue Show on SiriusXM Canada Talks Channel 167. And if you missed our spooky segment about Frankenstein the Opera, go to SiriusXM on demand or head over to SeanPru.com. That's Sean with a U P R O U L X. Com, where we podcast the very best of the Sean Prue show. Uh, we've now moved out of studio and into the offices of the Gay Men's Sexual Health Alliance. And Dane Griffiths is the associate director. And as listeners uh, of the SPS know uh, from, from having listened for a long time religiously, never missing an episode, right? Um, I have written about and been open about uh, my lived experience with, uh, as a gay man, what we call the party scene. And um, not so much now that I'm a little older and wiser, um, but I am fascinated, Dane. Uh, welcome to the show by the really good work you guys are doing. Because when I first wrote about uh, partying and playing, and in specific for, for what I was writing about then, uh, the use of crystal methamphetamine, also known as Tina um, or meth, or T. Um, it was 2005. Welcome to the show. You're younger than me by far. Insert bitch slap. Do you do you talk to people my age? And I'm 51. You're like 20 something nubile. Do we? Do we? No. Do you do you, do you talk to people my age and 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 hear things and think nothing's changed? Or do you hear things and think, uh, God, we've come a long way, and you're not. 20 something let's face facts here i think it's um i think it's both i certainly i mean it was older gay men that inspired me to do the work that i do in hiv and in gay men's health and in some ways it seems like nothing has changed and in other ways everything has Ooh. changed and i really love um some great uh, work and uh, out of bc where they looked at um just sort of framing like different generations of gay men. So um, generation, you know, gay being illegal, generation Stonewall, generation AIDS, generation gay marriage, and how um, and how that's shaped us as gay men in our community. So how has it shaped us? And, and, and for everybody listening who isn't necessarily uh, someone who identifies as someone who has sex with men or uh, even gay, uh, you know somebody who does, I think, and 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 the um, the work you guys do here around gay men's sexual health is on the leading edge and frank and real. And so, even if you think this doesn't pertain to you, keep listening because you know somebody this pertains to. I guarantee it. Because hasn't meth. Uh, partying and playing, which is the use of substances to enhance uh, a sexual experience with other people. Hasn't that 
exploded, pardon the pun? Um, we don't know if it's exploded. I think that's, that's one of the challenges. I mean, certainly we hear in community that more guys are using crystal meth. More guys are, are partying. At any given time, we really don't know um, the extent of how many folks are, are into that. And it also suggests, you know, P&P um, is also often framed as sort of like a scene or a subculture. And so I'm sure there are plenty of guys who party who wouldn't necessarily subscribe to that particular scene. I guess I think that it has um, exploded because back in the day when I was young, um, you didn't have websites, mm. for example. Well, you had them, but they were about hooking up. Now there's websites specific to specific mm. pleasures derived from drug use. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the rise in like the changing hookup culture, right? This move from cruising, you know, in a in a dark room. Uh, which we still have, thank goodness. <laughs> thank God. <laughs> to um, thank you, Madonna. You know, apps and selling yourself in 140 characters or less. Like, I don't think we can dismiss just the 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 changing way that drugs and sex have become more available. And for some of us, like that um, is a rewarding thing. It's something that we can derive like pleasure and connection from. Uh, and for others, we you know they don't they don't teach us how to navigate these spaces. So here at the Gay Men's Sexual Health Alliance, when you look at the issue or the scene, an issue makes it sound like it's a problem, and I, I guess for some it is, for some it is not. So the, the scene or the orbit or the atmosphere here, what do you see, how do you pinpoint what you're going to do and come up with to make things better? Because obviously that's what you're here for. I mean, we recognize that our relationship with substance use um, and sex as gay men is like unique across the board. How so? I would just, it's, a, you know, our interests, our desires, the sex we want, the sex we don't want. I think it's a very, um, in many ways, like an individual experience. And so right off the top, we don't, we don't come at PNP um, with sort of one single wide brushstroke. Um, you know, we need to be responsive to those folks who are experiencing challenges related to um, their substance use and their partying. Um, celebrate the folks who are doing well and, and, and do what we can to ensure that folks can stay in that space. Mm -hmm. um, I think that that's probably one of the most important things that we could we can say or you can say, so thank you for saying it. I, I think people listening right now who have um, and you know who you are, and this is there's no judgment on, on, on this, but if you're listening right now and you think of drugs in a certain way, let's say a stereotypical way, perhaps you don't know anyone who is uh, gay uh, or, or queer, you don't know any gay men, you don't know anyone who does drugs, but when you think of drugs, you think of them in a very specific, the user in a very specific way. And in the way you may look at a drug user, I looked at it through my own lens when I first began reporting on this. And when I first began reporting on this, I was reporting about my own usage as well. I mean, it was, I was self-discovering and then sharing. And I did well by that um, in, in the doing of that. But it never dawned on me as someone who is using it purely for their sexual pleasure. 
that others were using it to fit in. Others were using it to be liked. Mm -hmm. Others were using it because they've had such low self-esteem that, you know, and, and for example, the one thing I'll always remember that I'll share is there was a, a, someone who had immigrated to Canada, lived in Toronto that I interviewed, uh, who was from an African country, didn't think he fit in, had all of the um, African, Caribbean, cultural stuff that we're aware of now in terms of it being wrong. And, and he just was heaped with issues. And the only way he could get into something, and the only way he could derive pleasure, and the only way he felt of equal value to the hot guy he'd just met was to get high as a kite. Right. And so I, that, that opened my eyes, and I think that's what you're saying. Absolutely. I mean, if we just think about like what inhibits our enjoyment of sex as gay men... I mean, the list is endless from how we have to define and, you know, really sell ourselves on apps to... I really sell ourselves, if you don't know. The trauma of the AIDS epidemic, um, the, the lens through which our sex is often viewed, which is one of um, disease and risk. Um, you know, like this, this, this man that you were, you were speaking of, like uh, around, you know, migration and suddenly you find yourself in a community that is very sexually open and actually like quite permissive around the use of substances, mm -hmm. especially alcohol. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's no wonder that many of us would seek out ways to disinhibit uh, the sex that we're having. Well, and when you think about, you know, the way we've been grown up and the messages we've received and the sex is wrong and, and I'm not going to go off on a tangent too much, but, you know, we've, we've still got a gay blood ban here in Canada. New prime minister just squeaked in Justin Trudeau and the, the gay blood ban, please, because that's another generation of people who are going to grow up thinking that they're dirty. And so when you think that, but I want to just position this to the, the listener um, everything that we, we want is because we think we're going to feel better if we have it, right? And so there's listeners out there right now who uh, are going to the mall to shop because they want to hit. They are at the gym because they want to hit. They have not left the office yet because they're workaholics and so on and so forth. And so do you find it easy to create understanding between the broader mainstream and the work you're doing here? Or do you even care? Um... You know, it, it, that's a no. <laughs> I mean, I think I, I do care. I mean, one of the challenges I've experienced in sort of positioning the work that we're doing is um, hearing from folks, you know, what makes, you know, substance use among gay men any different than any other population. And what does actually, that's a really good question or a good observation. I mean, so much of it is different. The ways in which um, our substance use, of, you know, the way the substances we use are different. Um, the motivations or the reasons behind our use of drugs is different. The way in which um, the sort of social context in which substance use happens within our community is very different. Um, and, you know, the significant lack of access to culturally relevant substance use supports is a huge issue for folks. You know, I speak to a lot of gay men who, uh, you know, don't want to go to a treatment program uh, where they cannot bring their full, you know, sexual self when they're in a room with, uh, for example, opioid heterosexual populations. 
um, where the the sex and the quest for for intimacy and connection is not one that is addressed by uh, the folks working in those programs. So it's very it's very unique, and I think that's that's one thing that we um, are consistently trying to communicate to folks outside of the community. We're going to take a quick break right now. More with Dane Griffiths. I want to talk. Invite you to join me for this uh, talk about P and P. I tried to do a rhyme there. <laughs> the Shumper Show continues. SiriusXM Canada Talks Channel 167. I'm glad you're with us. This is The Sean Prue Show on Canada Talks, Sirius XM 167. It's the weekend. The Sean Prue Show continues here on Sirius XM, Canada Talks Channel 167. Dane Griffiths is the Associate Director here at the Gay Men's Sexual Health Alliance. Why a GMS Did you ever do that here? <laughs> here in Toronto. Uh, and they are doing some leading edge work and there's never a crown on the leading edge i was honored to speak and host at a symposium launching their new campaign called party and play your way if you're joining us right now this is a discussion about uh drug use amongst gay men or men having sex with men uh in the ontario areas where what you serve but this is a conversation for the ages and the masses really tell us about the party and play your way campaign like that means like big hats and boas and balloons and pony rides and cake and punch and pie. <laughs> um, Party and Play Your Way, uh, which hasn't officially launched yet, although there is um, some wonderful work happening around the province around P&P. It's, it's our way of supporting folks working in gay men's health to be... Um, more informed, uh, more responsive to the needs of gay, bi, queer men who use drugs in the province. It's a whole suite of activities. It's sort of like a, a mixed bag. It's like a bathhouse. Absolutely. A whole suite of activities. With many, with many doors uh, to many rooms. And so, you know, the way you know, we approach campaign development um, from a way that, like, centers the needs and interests of gay men um, that invites community into that process and into that conversation. Um, that comes from a place of like strength and empowerment. I mean, there's been plenty of campaigns, uh, you know, over the years, uh, not by us, because I think we do really great work, but that have really, I think, been like quite damaging and reinforced. Stigmatizing. Stigmatizing and reinforced, um, you know, the deficits uh, for for gay men, which we're constantly on the you know the receiving end of hearing those messages. Right? So, so so I'm gonna just um, be the bad guy here. So I remember I wrote a, an article for the Globe and Mail called um, HIV's Little Helper, and they ran some of the, what I think you're talking about uh, campaigns in other cities by well-meaning people who wanted to to stop what they saw as um, as, as as an epidemic in some ways, and so there'd be posters of um, um, big sale, buy HIV, uh, buy, buy, use crystal meth, get HIV free. Or what, do you remember any of the other yeah, sort of lines? Crystal mess. Crystal mess, uh, mess uh, is get it. Um, and nothing, and I say well-meaning because people were, but I think we've come a long way in the consciousness about 
people using and a lot of more conservative people think just tell them to stop get them in treatment but the problem with that is that you stop your shopping stop your workaholism stop going to the gym stop doing the things that are giving you a sense of relief and feeling better because that's what everyone is reaching for regardless. And in this case with sex, it's well, it's kind of a powerful force. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this case, um, it's you can't just tell people to stop either. Yeah, and I mean, we, you know, that's not how we approach our work. We, I think, come from a place of empowerment. You know, we respect, you know, agency and self-determination and choice. We want folks to be informed so that they can have, you know, the best possible experience. And last week at our at our conference, I opened with a, a question, really, for the room, which is a question we keep coming back to, and it's how do we support gay by queer men to have the greatest sex and intimacy with the least amount of harm? And I think that applies to to all gay men, whether we use drugs or not. What was the answer? Because in the audience were uh, front frontline workers, executive directors of of health organizations. What were some of the responses you got back? Uh, so it was, or was it just it was, a, it was just historical yeah, okay. uh, to get folks uh, thinking mm-hmm. about the the work that they're doing, um, but it is like it's yeah definitely a question we keep coming back to. I think there the answer could be any number of things to any number of people um, in our community, and certainly we recognize as well that. For um, for those of us who are, you know, celebrating the sex that we're having, um, you know, feeling, you know, like those feelings of the pride we have about who we are and, and you know, the sex and the, the substance use, and we're able to, you know, maintain that, that's a really wonderful thing. And we also recognize that on the flip side of that are guys who are struggling, who are not having um, necessarily their needs met, who have lost, you know, significant things in their lives, whether it be connection to friends, family, job, housing, weight, health. You know, I hear that um, from some of my my older colleagues, you know, just the the number of gay men who died sort of post um, 1996 when they introduced HIV treatment. Like, those men were trying to figure out how they were going to go on living um, and, you know, using crystal meth for a whole range of complicated reasons related to that. And we lost many of them. And so I think we have to acknowledge that as well. I think, um, and I, I think it might, if you're listening to this whole interview, and if you haven't, go back to uh, SiriusXM On Demand or Shampoo.com for the podcast uh, or the on-demand version of this, because it's important, because if I, I think people might think, oh, Sean, you're speaking to a certain kind of row, and that's the row of people who don't understand drugs, but I prefer that because anyone else is, is hearing this conversation and it's making some sense. But if you think about... Um, the idea of not doing the work you do, um, then what you have is people who are just being sort of forced into treatment or encouraged into treatment. And what I don't think people understand, if they think that's the answer, um, you know, stop stop the um, safe injection sites, stop all this education, stop the prevention, blah, blah, um, is that when you create that, and I can say this anecdotally, I have I have known many guys who have partied and enjoyed and then they beat themselves up afterwards and then they're guilted out to death after this then they're stressed then they're be- blaming themselves then they're beating themselves up and if you don't create an environment where we remove some of that the next time they use it's from that entry point mm-hmm. 
It's from the entry point they last left off. And that's what creates the spiral that everybody who wants to help and, and doesn't like the idea of drug use, doesn't like the idea of, 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 of just wants treatment for people, that's what causes the spiral in the first place. So if you insert a step, like what you're talking about, and make people empowered, have choices, and actually feel okay about it afterwards, mm -hmm. now you have someone who's not going to need all the stuff that these well-meaning people that I'm speaking to think we should just go straight to. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we need to remind ourselves always that, uh, you know, gay men, we're sort of, you know, we're navigating sex and substance use, which are two stigmatized things to begin with, let alone sort of collectively as sort of the experience of P and P. Um, and, you know, we're, as young gay men especially, Oh, so young over here. We, you know, we're, we still have folks, you know, we're still growing up gay in a very straight and stigmatizing mm -hmm. world. And so when the idea comes up of, uh, you know, substance use prevention or uh, can we just get folks to stop? I'm like, well, in my head, I think of prevention uh, as, you know, all of those, you know, changing that that narrative and that experience of how we grow up as young folks who don't experience um, uh, the same kind of closeness necessarily to to family, right? Or we're being forced to move to the big city to find community. Hello. Or childhood bullying or trauma, any number of these experiences that I think are so um, central to who we are. Um, I think that's like the tough work and I'm not aware of you know, certainly that's not an area that we work in, and I'm, I'm not sure of anyone who is. So how is the campaign um, that you are launching unfolding? What's it include? How are you talking to people? What can you tell us? Mm -hmm. Now, Sean Pruchot exclusive, everyone. Well, first, it's um, supporting our, our key stakeholders, who are uh, a group of 28 organizations across the province that have um, staff who work in gay men's health promotion. Um, so a lot of the, the work that we've been doing is, you know, dialogue and training, um, supporting them to understand the sexual and substance using culture of PNP. Um, on the other side of things, for more community facing, we're developing a uh, website called partyandplayyourway.ca, um, which will have everything you need to know to... Um, uh, take care of yourself within uh, party settings. So uh, whether it's harm reduction strategies to related to slamming or injecting crystal meth. That's slamming. Um, to getting guys connected if they party, getting them connected to, to PrEP. Um, Tell us what PrEP is. So PrEP is a medication that you take um, if you're HIV negative to prevent you from acquiring HIV, right? Where... Um, you know, emphasizing the importance of, you know, sexual health testing, HIV testing, getting connected to treatment as soon as possible if you're living with HIV. Um, so there's all of those sort of sexual health messages, um, but also we're addressing things like consent uh, within party spaces. Um, what is your fondest wish in the work that you do um, for, for people who are receiving it? Um, I think my fondest wish is for... Balloons, streamers, pony yeah. rides, hats. 
you know, I think it comes back to that question I raised earlier. Like, I want all of us to thrive as gay men, to have really great sex, to be, um, you know, nurtured by community, however we define that for ourselves. Um, and I want guys who use drugs to, um, to be seen and to be heard um, in the work that we're doing. I think what's got me so excited, Dane, is that the work you're doing is honest and authentic. And that's the key to creating that kind of success. There can be no other way. It can't be by forcing people to change their behavior. It can't be by dragging people, kicking and screaming. Anyone listening to this, think about when someone's told you not to do something or you want to do something and they're like pulling you away from it. You just dig your heels in. Mm -hmm. And so I, it's taken a long time, but I feel this is the most honest and authentic, as I've said, approach. And it's really good work that you're doing. And I, I applaud you and your, your team here. And I think, you know, this will require that we have to, you know, we have courageous conversations as a community, as gay, bi, queer men, um, which means we'll have to bring some of our vulnerabilities to it, um, some of our tensions, some of our frustrations. Um, and I welcome all of that dialogue and debate. I think it's good for for our community. And and I just want to say this, if you're listening and you're, you're identifying with this conversation to the best of your ability, own it. Just own it, even if it's within yourself. Stop beating yourself up. Uh, I think there's a big part, and, and you know, if you listen to this show all the time, that I'm a bit woo-woo. You came here for this experience. Mm -hmm. You came here for this, partly. And so uh, you are on a ride, and um, other people are going to have something to say about that, but other people have something to say about all of that that you are. So you got to make a choice and just... Um, own it and be responsible. And is your website launched? Because this is something that anyone can look at. And if it's not launched, give us an idea of when, or write this down. It'll be launching uh, definitely next year. Okay, cool. You will see it. Okay. Well, we'll have you back on next year. And um, thank you so much for a sexy, silly, smart conversation. Dane Griffiths, The Sean Pru Show, over and out. It's the happiest show on the radio, you know. 